Welcome to the Wise Education Podcast with me, Dr. Sadie Hollins. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss and explore topical issues facing international school education. And in this episode, I have the privilege to speak with Kathleen Naglee, Head of School and CEO at the International School of Helsinki. We discuss a range of relevant issues, including the importance of having and showing vulnerability and empathy as a leader to staff, students and especially families. Kathleen's mission to ensure that international school recruitment organisations do more to protect and support LGBTQ plus staff and the International School of Helsinki's world pioneering work on VR and the role of VR in the future of education. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Thanks so much for joining this episode of the Wise Education Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Kathleen Naglee, Head of School at the International School of Helsinki. Kathleen is someone who I've come across again and again in the world of international education. And what struck me about Kathleen most is who she seemed to be as a leader. Authentic, progressive and valuing in talking about the right things and someone that I really would love to learn from. So I was really delighted when she agreed to talk to me today. Um, it's great to speak to you, Kathleen. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Sadie, for having me. No problem. So we'll, I want to kind of find out a little bit more about Kathleen as a, as a person first. And um, when I was doing my research, uh, I noticed that you've, you've got an interesting background where you've, you've studied geography and, and urban studies. And then you've kind of moved from being a history teacher, both in um, secondary education and uh, higher education. And then you've had a few different interesting roles before your current role uh, as a head of school at the International School of Helsinki. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your journey to how you got to where you're at now? Uh, thank you for the question. And I think there's just two pieces um, to that. And I'll, I'll try to speak to both. Uh, I would say my journey has actually been um, uh, quite unexpected. Almost every position I ended up in um, I came to the position completely untrained and not having the coursework to be in that position. So my, my first teaching job was in uh, New Mexico uh, with uh, indigenous populations of that region, many uh, Navajo, Native Americans, and some Pueblo people. And uh, I, I had moved there and couldn't find a job. And I began subbing in the school district and um, eventually, a few months later, uh, we placed an outgoing geography teacher. My, my background was in geography, urban studies. And um, I, I did that for a number of years and began working on my educational credential. I, I never had a single course in education before I started um, doing that. From there, my, my, my road in, in teaching, most of it, the first half of my career was really in um, poor and urban communities. Um, after New Mexico, I went to uh, Hungary right after the fall of the, of the Soviet Union in the area. So I was a volunteer making very little money. And that was my first foray into Europe and kind of post-Soviet space, which I spent a lot of my career at later on. Um, after my time in Hungary, I went back to New Mexico for a little bit and then ended up in um, Southern uh, California, urban Southern California in some really tough kind of environments and um, places where um, 
a lot of poverty, a lot of immigrants from around the world who, who end up in that, that region. Um, and those experiences in these poor urban areas really informed my teaching and really everything that I learned and learned a value as an educator come, came from those experiences. Later on, I ended up in Estonia as a history teacher and I entered into the IB kind of system. I then went to West Virginia for a little bit and uh, was at the university level working with um, poor miners' children from West Virginia. And then back again to Estonia, I got a job as the upper school principal, never had an administrator's um, course before I took that job. Did that for a few years. Um, the school was in trouble and I offered to become the interim and I would fix the, the, the school's problems. The, they were heading towards bankruptcy. If, if they would pay me the, as a year for as a, as a teacher, I would take on the role as the director. And I was able to navigate that school out of that, those troubled waters. I later got my principal, principal certification a few years into that role. And so I'm the example that you do not need to get 40 degrees to enter into leadership. And I think the, the key to my success in, in all those situations was that, and I look back now in 30 years of my career, was that I was always able to make things happen that other people didn't think were possible. And starting going back to that geography, urban studies and history background, I think it's an interesting question of like, how did that possibly inform who I was as, as a leader and what I did? But, you know, in ge geography, urban studies, you start in a position of the present moment and you're looking to change systems. Um, and oftentimes as a city, as a system, you have to understand many different influencing factors on how people and why people do things, which is often similar to a school. And the other part of me was the history background. And that was really most of my career as a history teacher, not geography, but history starts from the present moment and has a dialogue with the past to think about causation. And, and so I've been trained in, in both places to be in the present moment, to look both in, in the past and look into the future and trying to figure out how you, you move systems. And what I often bring into a school and into conversations is I always have a very strange perspective as to what we need to be working on to really have impactful change. And so my solutions um, are often different than everyone else in the room. It just happens very often. I'm thinking in, in a different way than others. And when I taught in these poor urban communities, what I thought 30 years ago, which now everyone you know, sees us very clearly, to me, like there was no progress unless the kids were okay. So if I wasn't dealing with well-being issues for, for young people and I wasn't present with them and I wasn't getting to know them and having deep connection with them, that, then nothing was going to change in their lives in, in my class. If, if my only expectations were to memorize some random fact in history, then 
of course I could make that happen, but that didn't transform their thinking. And so the kind of teaching I had always done was teaching them to be critical thinkers. And um, I pushed systems in different ways to make, make that happen. And I had great success in very difficult environments uh, where my students would excel because I was looking at it a different kind of angle as to why, what would the, what I often say is what was the game was like in that situation and how was the game um, being orchestrated so that my kids weren't succeeding and what did I need to do to make sure that they would succeed and you know so this kind of strange perspective I seem to have is about um, not being caught up in what is the, the kind of the straightforward educational answers as to why something is happening. I'm always asking, is there, is there another reason why this is happening? What, what is happening individually for this child? What, what do I need to know? And what do I need to do to help them um, be engaged in whatever we're working on? And the meaningful part of that, I could care less about facts and figures, but if they came away as a critical thinker, then, then I did my job. And I always did this in a loving environment. And that's just who I always was as a teacher. And, and not only did I love them, but they loved me. And we just always created this little space of kindness and warmth and humor and goofiness. And this, is, this was my teaching practice. Um, so when I look at my career, there's these distinct patterns. I get things done. I have this execution factor. I make, I make it happen. Like I'll, I'll say, okay, this, I think this is the, what's happening. Let me try to work on this and then change it. So if I would kind of sum up 30 years, this is, this is how I, I would see it. And the, I think the urban studies part was was an interesting angle for my own thinking later on um, as, a, as a leader, for sure. It's, it's really refreshing to hear because for so many reasons, but I, I have come into international education not having trained or qualified as a teacher. Um, my wife has, I feel like by osmosis, I've taken some of, some of that on. And, um, you know, and I, and I kind of struggled to come to terms with, uh, do I feel like a fake in this environment? I, I, I worked in higher education, but I haven't come through the same system. And, um, and I've kind of felt for me, it feels like an asset because I don't feel constrained by how I think things should be. Um, but I feel like it's, it's really refreshing to have someone, you know, in, in your position, you know, speaking about that, actually you, you come, a slightly more alternative route and I think um, you know I think education needs that as well as coming through a, a more formal route. Yeah and I, I think a lot of education although you know I'm, I'm not going to dismiss educational theory or training super important but most of us know the first few years of our teaching you, you learn by fire. Um, no matter what courses you took, there's not a there's not a new teacher who doesn't say like ah like I don't know what I'm doing. I'm trying to figure out. And this whole like you know the management and the dealing of people and personalities and the flow of a room and and how we interact. And 
you know, when I entered into leadership, there were, there were big pieces, you know, I was missing as well. And I had, to, I had to find that information very quickly. And I feel like it's been a, a marathon. I've been running for a long time that there's always much more to learn. But for, for the women in the audience who are listening, many women will not enter into leadership until they feel they have all the right qualifications. So they'll spend years and years working on a doctorate and, and others, you know, and they'll try to like every single job in the school before they ever apply for the head of school. And I'm often trying to convince them that what's important is that you demonstrate your leadership now, whatever position you're in. If you're a first year teacher or if you're 30 years in, what are you making happen for your students? People will recognize that and they will give you more and more responsibility when you show that you can, you can enact ideas and pilots and you know, activities that are, are, are making the lives of young people better. So don't be afraid to just you know, assert your leadership by influencing the system around you. Um, you don't need permission for that. You don't need a title for that. And you know, if anything, the title gets in the way of what I'm doing a lot in my, my career. I'm trying to make the lives of young people better. What I need to do to move the barriers that are, are stopping that from happening. And um, the, title, the title for me in my current position gives me much more power and influence than I've ever had. And I have to use it wisely now. I don't get caught up into the old system and the way schools run because you know the, the, the system of schooling does not serve most students and that's just a fact. I think that's um that's really cool about I guess like owning your strengths as a as a female working in, in education and and something I think I've felt like I've um, noticed more through doing the magazine and stuff is is like celebrating your own successes or or being confident to put things forward um and I guess being your own number one supporter and I don't mean that as in like you think you're absolutely gonna like you know do something like really really well but you think like why can't I do it you know if they're doing it why can't I do it and um I think as a lot of women definitely struggle with that um so I think that's that's uh that's really encouraging to hear um and like I said, in schools, what I think you often see is that teachers or, or you know, especially a lot of female teachers will not want to buck against the system, will not want to kind of disturb it because we're so trained for consensus about what's happening. But to me, like understanding your role, whatever it is in a school and moving forward on, you know, even if it's just you're only working one on one with a student. How can I how can I improve this person's life? What can I do to be a good influence on this person's life? And that's the only thing like you don't need confidence for that. You just have to have it's like, you know, you have a mission for what you're doing in education. And when I, when I train women sometimes in leadership, I'm asking them, what is it? What is their key element? Why are they in teaching? All of us have kind of like an origin story for it. Like what is the key piece that puts you here? Figure out what those values are because whatever you, if those are the strong values that are supporting the lives of others, you dig into that and that's what you're working on. 
you're not working on moving through a system. You're not, you're working on like, how am I making my values into action? And that's, that's what should propel you um, in your work. If you really know what, what, what your why is, why, why, are you, why are you here? Um, sometimes I'll ask women this and they're like, you know, the, the answer is kind of like super vague because they haven't really thought about that. Like somehow, you know, you'll have some, some people in education, like I love school and I never left school. You know, like they always had a good experience in school and everything went well for them. I, to me, these are the most dangerous teachers sometimes because they haven't understood suffering. They don't have empathy for the child that struggled. Um, but like, what, what is your, what's that vulnerable position that you experience? I often talk about when I was in high school, I was anonymous in high school. Teachers didn't always remember my name. I was not anybody who had a voice. I was not somebody who was popular. When I taught high school, I didn't want them to have a life like I had. I wanted them to have someone that they felt somebody knew them and somebody cared like that has pushed so much of my my work all along. I, I can I can really, really relate to that because I, me and my wife have talking about this a few times. We've both very much felt invisible at school. You know, we were quiet, we were nice, you know, we did work, we didn't cause trouble. But, you know, I, if you went back, would they remember us? Like, absolutely not. You know, in two years after we left, would they remember us? No, they wouldn't have done. And um, and I feel very much drawn to, to helping the students who I think everyone else doesn't see. And I, yeah. and I kind of find it interesting because even though I have that sensitivity, like actively, I want to look for that. Um, there's still students that slip through the net for me. And I'm like, wow, like that uh, says a lot to me and says a lot about the things that I want to do better as, as, a, as a teacher or someone as, and working ed in education. Um, I was just kind of thinking as you were talking, I know bef before we started the recording, um, you were kind of talking about your, your background and your family very much coming mm. from a, a working class background. And, um, and it just kind of had me thinking about, you know, the privileged environments that we're working in, in international school education. And, uh, and I know there are some teachers that come from perhaps um, more privileged backgrounds. And then I always find it interesting, those teachers that come from a working class background and how how you manage the world of international education and the world of privilege. And um, you said something about kind of working with students in deprived areas before you worked in international education and helping them to understand the game and how, kind mm -hmm. of orchestrating and how it can work best for them. Um, I haven't really got a good formulated question here, but I was just kind yeah, of- Yeah, I can, I can speak wondering. to that. So, so my background, you know, my parents worked in a factory. My mother never finished high school. My mother was born in a refugee camp uh, following World War II. She grew up in really horrible circumstances of poverty and violence in the home. And my father was a Vietnam veteran very early out of, out of the war. And so I grew up in an environment that was not rich necessarily in kind of educational kind of experience that you know you would imagine for a child. Um, and we literally grew up on the wrong side of the tracks in, in the town that I, I was at and most of 
most of my classmates had very similar backgrounds to myself. And, you know, I, I, I guess I still feel in many ways always like a bit of a fish out of water in, you know, in, in, in some parts of my career. And it's, it's really sad for me that sometimes that because of my position, um, people have this expectation that I grew up in some other, some other kind of life and they feel that somehow I'm unknowable or that they can't, they can't be friends with me. So it's a source in many ways of another source of isolation and being in a position like my own because um, you find that people, yeah, that they just have this kind of like, they, they see the hierarchy and they stop seeing, you know, I'm always like, I'm, I'm the girl down the street, I'm Kathy down the street, you know, um, and I didn't grow up with any of this. And sometimes I find it just, just very fascinating and, I'm often put in a position where I feel like an observer to what's happening. And this happens when I'm in, sometimes in directors meetings around the world of people who, who definitely had a more privileged background than I, I did. And um, in many ways, I'm always feeling that I'm, a, you know, it's a bit of an act for me, just, you know, um, it's a little bit of a show, you know, and this is navigating or passing um, in, in these communities. And, and I probably, there's been some studies that show that someone like myself maybe will overuse big words um, because you're trying to make up for something. You're trying to make up for your, for your accent or, or your background. Um, so maybe I do that as well. Um, maybe I come off as some phony baloney, I don't know. Is that, is that something like saying about your accent? Is that something you feel like you have consciously changed? I think it has just changed naturally because I taught a lot of, along the way in many different places, I taught English as a second language. So I had to learn how to, learn how to reduce speech and learn how to repeat things, take things a little bit slower. Um, and also anytime I use a word that might have more than one meaning, meaning I, I think I have a tendency to define the word almost immediately for those who might, you know, where English is a second language. So, but, you know, there have been experiences. I, I told this once I had, we had a anthropologist come to the school and she was doing some interviews and I was interviewed and she, I guess her experience with my accent found it very very foreign and she, she wrote it down with kind of, um, I guess her, like what was her literal interpretation of my accent. So there were things like gonna, wanna kind of, instead of going to or wanting to. And that was written in, in the anthropology report. And I felt very, I felt shamed by that. And like, there's, it's probably something that's still a sore point that, somehow like to me when I was reading that, like it felt as like, as if she was portraying me as being uneducated. And this is something that, you know, um, when you come from a background like mine, it's something that there's still a part of me that's aware and thinking, oh, is that what I really sound like to people? That do I sound like, you know, um, somebody who um, doesn't have doesn't have the education to speak on these topics. 
it's interesting because I read something literally yesterday and um, someone was saying that, you know, they've grown up in East London and they have an East London accent and I think they're, they're working in leadership and they, like that has worked against them when they've gone for jobs because of how they sound and, you know, it's it seemingly um, been perceived as, as uneducated and um, that, you know, like how do you manage, like how do you do of like keeping that part of yourself and or getting people to accept that without having yeah. to to change. Well, I, I think I've learned I've learned to not hide it as much anymore. Like if you if you listen to me and you see me and different things, I'm often telling very vulnerable stories now, and that took a long time to get to that point. But even when I when I when I um, was hired for the job I was at, the speech I gave to the community where they're kind of doing like the dog and pony show of the possible new director and they're like interviewing and whatever. I, I, I intentionally gave a, um, I gave a story that really spoke to the poverty of my family and, um, and how I had worked in the factory with my grandmother when I was a teen. And that was purposeful at that moment because I wanted to make sure they understood who I was, that, that they needed to understand like this was part of my background. And I was replacing a wonderful man, but he was Oxford trained and, you know, the, the son of, you know, someone who was well known in his community and like the exact opposite, as some people would perceive, like a highly privileged white British male with an Oxford training and an Oxford accent. And here comes this short woman from Philly <laughs> who did not come from that and did not go to grand schools. I didn't go to Ivy League, you know, places. And like, so I, I wanted just to, to show that clearly. So I didn't want them to be fooled that I was something other than I wasn't at that moment. I know we talked about this a little bit before, but like, Coming into the world of international education, have you felt out of place? I would say in, in the role of the leadership part, yes. I, I think as a history teacher, you know, when you're a teacher, you're in your own little world, right? It's like your own little kingdom, queendom, whatever you want to call it. And I think when I was in international education, you know, I had, I had traveled a lot, like a lot of international teachers, like we have a, a very similar background. We're like these people who move around a lot, travel a lot, interested, curious people. So I think I think I've, I was okay with that. And the colleagues I had, you know, you, you find your people maybe. I would say that the, the strangeness happened much more when I was put into positions of power and speaking to communities um, speaking to you know parents and the ambassadors and being invited to the ambassador's house for dinner, um, and you know it's a classic you know kind of some kind of strange story about am I using the right fork kind of story. <laughs> um, but I, I've also learned that you know what I've understood from people who are in highly privileged positions, the most you know, the, the, the best way to connect to any person is just to be yourself. And when they see that in yourself, then the chances of you 
creating deep friendships with somebody are way higher. When you get away from the surface level of talking and talk about real things, which most people don't dare talk about when they have conversations with adults, like you, if you broach that with people, you broach that with students, people always, always respond, no matter what their background is. Like to me, it's now I understand it's a point of connection. For me to share my vulnerability is the way that I can make deep connections with others. So something I, um, I guess I, I was thinking about is I, I've come from, from a, I'd say a working class background in the sense of that, you know, my dad, my mom didn't finish school. And, um, and I guess moving into international education, I brought my history with me and, uh, you know, maybe my, my chip on my shoulder a little bit um, of, you know, like, I don't belong here. Um, they don't know how, you know, students don't how, know how good they've got it. And that was my perception. And then being in it, students are students, right? And they have the same issues. And actually sometimes their privilege gets in the way of them getting the help that they need. And um, that's something I ha I've had to check with myself of like, you know, thinking, oh, of course they've got it all taken care of. And it's like, well, no, they, they don't because they have the same problems, I think, that everyone does. Yeah, actually I've seen more commonalities with my poorest students and my wealthiest students because the wealthiest students are often left completely on their own. Parents disappear. They you go, go on a vacation to Malta and you're, they're left with the nanny. And then at a certain age, the, the nanny disappears. And they're just lonely, sad people who, you know, they might have a lot of money to spend and it gets them into other types of trouble sometimes, of drugs and alcohol. Um, but I've seen that um, how their lives spin out of control very quickly oftentimes. They, to me, it's, it's a curse to be wealthy as a young person. It's a curse for sure. I mean, that's, yeah, that's really uh, interesting. Cause I think, like, I wonder if I show less empathy or have shown less empathy because you think, um, you know, like maybe they're not experiencing the same kind of, of troubles as, you know, maybe have experienced growing up and that, and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, maybe I think sometimes there can be a delay in giving the kindness showing the kindness to, to students that they actually really need and they really really deserve and and I think what what I found interesting is even working in this privileged environment I think I've learned a lot about myself in being more empathetic and being a better person even when I think maybe I thought I wouldn't because what what, what has this got to show me like this, this is a privileged world I, I can't learn anything from this world and actually I was completely wrong <laughs> um yeah and, and I think the hardest part of all is I mean Ultimately, what we're doing is seeing into the heart of another. Like, do you have, do you have the strength to put away all those preconceptions about anybody and really see who this person is and really show yourself to that person? Um, and this to me is, is the key to leadership. It's the key to teaching. Um, can you shed all those things and see, you know, see deeply into another and that requires showing yourself first showing you know your your wounds showing your your vulnerabilities and then people always tell you theirs um and if you can speak to somebody into that to that to their depths 
then there's a chance of connection. Then there's a chance of transformation on either side or both. How do you manage that? I think I, I think that's so true. And I, you know, Kathleen, I, I've, I've only spoke to you for, for an hour and I feel like I'm already revealing a lot of things. <laughs> so I definitely <laughs> am experiencing this right now. Um, but I guess I wonder, like, I think I can see that with students. I can see that with management to a degree. But what about parent community? And it's, it's the most important thing. It's it, maybe even more with the parent community. Like to me, you know, I have this at this office and one day I hope to have you sit in it, Sadie. And I've, my office looks like a living room. I've taken away everything that looks like an office. And would I bring a teacher in or a student in or a parent in? I wanna treat them like this beautiful guest who has entered into my space. And I wanna be this incredibly deep listener to them. Because if you give parents a chance to really tell their story, what they're mad about has usually absolutely nothing to do with you, has nothing to do with what the issue was. It has to do with the deepest fears of themselves, the deepest fears as, of themselves as a parent, they might be failing their child. And like, when I get them into my office, that's all I'm listening for. It's like, how can I get them to tell me what's really going on? What are they really scared of? And, and get that all out. And if I can get that all out and I can, I can say that back to them, like, I see this is the thing you're really worried about, or I can show some kind of empathy for, from other experiences I had, then they feel like they've been heard and then, then we can move. And some of the most difficult parents I've ever dealt with are often some of the ones who become dear friends of mine later on. And, you know, and we can look back on it and laugh, like think about how they came in just like with fury about something. Um, and, and then to be able to say, once they understood that I was going to really, really closely listen um, and ask questions to try to find that out. And once you know that about, you know, the parent, then, then, you, then you can take yourself out of the equation. I'm just gonna be observer at the moment. This person is in a really difficult moment in their life. And that's why they're here in tears or in anger with me because, uh, yeah, oftentimes because they think they've failed their child. Uh, oh, it's so much, so much truth to that. And I think um, it, it makes me reflect on when perhaps I've become defensive, you know, whether it's a complaint come in and, and really that's rooted in my insecurity and perhaps, you know, and that, and that is so human and the same, you know, when, when parents perhaps are upset, what does it say about how they feel about their situation about you know, um, troubles that they're having parenting because parenting is, is hard work. It's hard. <laughs> and what I, what I say to new leaders in my system, sometimes I say to them, you know, sometimes they, they've come out of the teaching world where they're like incredibly empathetic with a child. And it's like, you know, you've got to take that same heart and give that to the adult in front of you. And that's so hard because we have such higher expectations for adults not to screw up. And we don't forgive them. Like I'll, I'll forgive a teenager anything practically. Like I, this ultimate, you know, it's a learning lesson. We'll figure it out. But you know, I can tell you, especially my early, early years as a leader, like being so mad, I was cleaning up the mistakes of adults all the time. 
And once, once I realize, like, I got to stop, I got to get rid of that judgment that, that I'm thinking like this. I got to think that the people on my team, I got to, I got to think of that the same heart I brought to the classroom. I got to bring every time to whoever is in my office, whoever I'm talking to. And that is hard because we're exhausted. And if our well-being is not where we're at, it's really hard to to be present for another when you're exhausted. And, and uh, you know, during the pandemic, like we, our, our, our fuse of being lit is, you know, often very short. So like, but if, 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 you, if you can move your thinking to that, like how would I treat this person if they were 14, you know, in front of me? How, how would I love them and take care of them? Yeah, very differently. Yeah, so, so true. Adults are hard. That. Everyone knows that in school. <laughs> We're the problem. Yeah. And myself yeah. included. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, we have our fully formed opinions, right? And we, our judgments are much, are much quicker. Um, yeah. And harsher. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. Um, I guess I was just wondering, I was, I was thinking about... Um, your background in history and I know like when I was researching in your profile um you know you, you're very much a educational change maker right and and I was wondering how I, I remember hearing in a talk you want to take the best of what's happened in the past and bring it forward um well, I guess what are some of those things for you what do you think needs to stay yeah I think essentially we've always known that um, the best education is when you've made a connection with others, right? Like everyone has their story about their favorite teacher or their coach or somebody in their life who was there for them in a different way when they needed that. And all the rigmarole we have around, rigmarole around education is often distracting us from that, that fact. So how do we make that be the centerpiece of modern education? How do, we, how do we make sure that the time and the space and the schedule and the resources and the training all centers around this holistic view about a, a young person's life? And you know, I, I know that you, your passion is around well-being. And, I, and this is, it is so incredibly essential. And if we're talking still in some kind of system of academic excellence and testing and standardization, then we are completely on the wrong path, completely. Um, all of those systems have failed us. Like when do we face the fact that most of schooling did not serve the majority of people for the last hundred years? We've, we've created a system that is caused people to have, you know, sometimes lifetime self-doubt about their, their skills and their ability to gain new skills. We've created systems in which children have been bullied and traumatized. We've created systems in which we have denied people because of, you know, racist intent or homophobia or a whole, whole slew of things that created these artificial barriers so they could not overcome them to get access to types of places that would, would give them later success. So 
until we face ourselves in the mirror and say, this has never worked. It's only worked for a teeny tiny bit of students. And most of us are just survivors of what happened in schools. Until we, we say, okay, we can't go on this path anymore. We need to really switch gears and switching gears is, is, is starting from the place where the needs, the essential needs of, an, of a human, of an individual must come first. If, if you think about the, the artist from the turn of the cent last turn of the century, Gaudi, um, his view of how he created, how he created um, the world of objects in some of his, his buildings and his architecture. Um, he would make, for example, drawer handles by taking clay and molding it on, on fingers so that it would perfectly match how a finger would, three fingers, a thumb and two fingers would, would grasp a, a handle. That kind of thinking where human comes first, not some other design or some other thing we've had before, that's a radical approach. What I'm talking about is this Gaudi approach to education. It's, it's custom fit for the individual. It's, it's intentional to make an opportunities for, for a person from a very young age until they exit into adulthood that their essential needs were always met. And in the poorest places in the world, this is sometimes just the simplest things about food and clothing and a safe place where there's no violence, there's extreme care. I've been in some school districts where students wouldn't come to school because their clothes were dirty. And like a school having a solution, like we're gonna put a laundromat that's free on the campus. This is the kind of thinking that I believe in. It's like, what do they need? What do children in your community, in your context really need? And stop playing games what you think they need. What do they really need? And th that's what we have to move forward with. And what I'm taking from the past is what we've always known about what makes a human life meaningful. And this is, is these are these social relationships of care. I, I was thinking um, that this kind of comes back to like care, right? Um, and you would tie, you could tie well-being into that. And and something I was, I've been reading, um, is the idea. I guess the idea that well-being is become a, a buzzword, a catch term, uh, a tick box exercise. And I know, um, I think all some of the, the best things that coming into education run that risk, right? So similarly to uh, it's diversity, inclusion, equity. Um, I was just kind of curious to play devil's advocate is in, do you think that well-being is a tactic box exercise? I'm afraid that it's coming, it's coming into being to, to um, that is somehow that again, like school districts will purchase the product. We'll, we'll purchase the workbook kit <laughs> that goes along with this and students will have some worksheets that go along with well-being. So at, at our own, at the school I'm at now, Three years ago, we made a new strategic plan and we had four ideas that we thought were essential to learning. We call them catalysts. 
And this was well-being, autonomy, belonging, and real-world connection. We thought this is these are the this is what we decided were the keys to learning. And so we re-established all of our thinking through these four lenses so that it wasn't some kind of add-on. It's not a program when someone comes to the school for a three-hour workshop and then it's gone. So we're looking through these catalysts and everything, even like in purchasing, in the new building we're going to, about to build, in the annex planning, in the, um, the overall school budgeting, um, in the professional development we're doing with teachers, to how we're doing orientation. So like if if you if you take well-being or something around that idea and it's it is directing all of the work at the school, you're on the right path. If it's something that is is just something like you just kind of yeah an add-on, it's a workbook, it's just a PD session, then it's going to fail like every other educational um, initiative has failed. And and I know we've talked that this is my fear with DEIJ work. We're going to bring somebody in, and then it's it's not it's not who we are. We haven't changed our own, um, you know, putting the, the spotlight on ourselves and saying what do I need to do better about this forever. And it's not like a ten minute exercise. Um, so it's like really, you know. So when we're doing our DEIJ work, we're doing this because. You know, we believe in this word belonging. And what does that truly mean? How, how do we create a world where everyone's intersectional identities are, are valued and championed and cheered? Um, what are we doing wrong? What, what, what do we still need to do different? Because of course, there's, there's so much work to be done on these things. But if this is guiding the school and not test scores, then you're on the right track. I know um, uh, before we were chatting about this, and I, I kind of mentioned in your your recent talk, the heart to heart talk on feminist international schools. Um, I thought it was really refreshing to have you speak to this in terms of like the patriarchal and colonial roots of international schools, and um, I felt that you were very honest, and I think you know, uh, especially for a school leader to be like, no, I think this is still. A huge problem and I think there are a huge number of schools that are not interested in this um, and there are some schools but they're, they're quite a small group of, of schools that are doing this work and and something we were talking about is you know being in this kind of echo chamber like I feel I feel in my group everyone is on board with this and then I go to, to work or I talk to other people and they're like I don't know what you're talking about like um, and it's, <laughs> it's 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 a it's a real uh, you know, worry like how do you get this to grow, and you know, is that a realistic expectation, or do we need to just kind of focus in our schools? Um, but I know with your school, is it the, the stand program? Is that right? Yes. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about about that? Yeah. So so stand was um, it was it was a program that came out of or a student initiative that came out of Black Lives Matters coming out of last year's um, uh, murder of George Floyd. So when the students came back to the school this year, they wanted to, they wanted to do something meaningful. And we wanted them to lead this. And much of what I do in school is about, 
anyway, upturning old systems. So when I say I'm an educational change maker, I am, I am, I am, I am overturning old structures. And that is through building a different type of culture in a school. So if you want to influence the system, only talking to the echo chamber, it, it, it makes you feel good in the moment. Like, oh yeah, other people agree with this. Um, but the hard work is dealing with the people that don't um, or have no clue. So in this change that I'm working on, is, it's a cultural change at the school. And the cultural change I'm working on is that students have autonomy and we build autonomy by co-creating and by encouraging and, and allowing them to um, live out the values of our school. So our first word of our mission is inclusive. And the kids believe that I believe and the people in our leadership team believe this with them, that we're not paying lip service to inclusive. So when they started this movement, they, they really wanted to take some real action. And we said, we're gonna be here to support you on that, you know? Um, and through an, a, a really um, great program where we have students do this like entrepreneurial kind of unit in, in one of their grades where they, they help nonprofits rebrand and help them with their websites and kind of, you know, we take some skills that the students learn and, and try to put them in real action, re, real connection. And uh, so they decided they're gonna do a brand pitch with the school's logo. They wanted to do this, they want to take Black Lives Matters, but make it more inclusive to others who might be facing discrimination. So they, they took our logo and they did all these really great things with it. They put a Black Lives Matter fist and a rainbow flag and all sorts, everything they could think of as those who were discriminated against. And I was, I was so excited that they came to me with this because in many schools, if you were to take a Black Lives Matter fist and take it to the head of school and say, I wanna put this in your logo, they might be rejected by that. But the students knew that, you know, that they had a shot with me talking to me about this. And I was so excited about what they said. I said, let's do this right. Let me take, I have this wonderful woman who runs a, um, who runs our, our marketing, she's part of this marketing agency that we bring in. And I said, I'm gonna hire her to help you do this right. And so I put resources into it and then the students work with her. And this to me is what real agency is about. They learn how to work with a marketing team. They learned how to negotiate, they, you know, talk through their ideas. Um, and then, you know, they're making a brand. And, and then we decided, the marketing agent said, you know, how about we take out the ISH, International Helsinki kind of stuff. Why don't we, make, why are we, why are we limiting to this? Why don't we make this a global brand? I'm like, yes. Let's make this a global brand. And the kids were on board and we created logos and then you know the work began and they ran a, a student online conference. They found the speakers, they, they arranged the, the subjects, they interviewed people, um, they helped handle the tech. Um, they just did a walkathon at the school. Um, so it's this, it's this empowerment idea and this is, my educational change making, if anything. And so when you're given power, do not, do not lose the chance to empower others. And that means giving them the, the trust to lead the vision of your school. And you know, our school has a very strong mission out that didn't always have 
a very strong mission of inclusion, of belonging, of um, making sure that we're not just, you know, parading the international flags and say, woohoo, look at us. We have 40 different nationalities at our school, which is every international school around. And I can't tell you how often I want to take down the flags from our hall and people get mad at me still. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's saying, it's saying that to do this right is hard work that's going to last us a lifetime. It, there's no, there's no, you know, checkpoint. We've now become an inclusive society at our school and everything is perfect. Um, that's never going to be the case. I have kids coming in from around the world and teachers coming in from around the world. We're all bringing in our own bias. We all are starting to understand our unconscious bias. And um, it's, it's just this, it's creating a culture in which you expose yourself and say, hey, I can do better at this too. And we're not perfect. And we believe in this. And I don't want a kid to enter into our system to feel like there's no place for their own multiple identities to thrive. That's really, uh, I mean, it's, it's so good how much um, resources and empowerment the students have been given um, with that. And this is a really um, terrible link, but something I was thinking about and linking to something that I really wanted to, to ask you um, is actually like thinking about this. I, I did an implicit bias test last night and um, I did it around uh, sexuality and it came back that I had a moderate bias for gay people over uh, heterosexual people. And I thought, yeah, I, I very much thought that would be true. Um, and I guess uh, something I, that I've seen that you're you're working on is looking at um, assisting organisations that work with recruiting international teachers that, that belong to the LGBTQ community. And uh, it, it really interests me because my me and my wife had, have recently written a piece for for a book that will come out on our experiences of being a, a gay married couple teaching a teaching abroad. And and I guess what we wish we'd known when we moved. And um, we had difficulty because I know I first moved to Thailand. Um, our marriage isn't recognised legally here, so I couldn't get a visa. I didn't work in the school, and and actually it put a huge strain on us because it wasn't a smooth process. And um, and I and I guess I, I, when I saw that you were doing some of this work, um, I thought, oh, yes, like so good. I think this is so so needed. Um, I guess could you tell us a little bit about what you're doing in this area or, or where things are at? Well, I think, you know, when you're, when you're looking at diversity and inclusion work uh, around the world and, you know, in my role as, as a school leader, I have to, I have to understand that the, the international market has um, a huge number of barriers for a large, for most of the planet. There's, there's barriers about being a native speaker. There's barriers about do you fit the image of, you know, of whiteness, of background, of the schools you went to, the type of schools you've already taught in? Um, the LGBTQ, LGBTQ uh, community has um, other layers as well, of especially dangers, um, that, that, that they can be physically harmed and arrested um, for for their sexuality or their gender presentation. 
And I, I've, I've done work in my region for the last seven, eight years on that about um, helping teachers in dangerous regions or helping school leaders in dangerous re regions find safe places for their staff and their students. So I'm in the Central and Eastern European schools region, and we have, um, you know, we have Moscow, for example, in our region. And right now in Russia, you know, if you were to even talk about these issues, you could be arrested in schools for this, for, you know, propaganda or whatever. Um, so I've seen people and, and um, struggle on this. How do they get into these? Can they work in these schools? What's happening? And there's just not enough information out there. There, there are directors out there who, who find ways to bring in same-sex couples, for example, or to bring in trans teachers. But you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know that from looking at the big search associations that are out there. And so um, I've been talking with search associates lately, like you need to do better. We need, we need to know where safe schools are at. We need to know what the conditions are at for, for schools. And I myself, you know, I'm part of this community and I know how hard it's been for me. And I'm in a position of power that most people never um, attain. And it's scary in much of the world, right? It just is. It's dangerous and scary for, for many of our students and staff. So, you know, again, if we're looking at well-being, first part of well-being, are, are you physically safe to even be in that location? Are you physically safe in the school? And I've talked about this in, in other podcasts, but you know, um, the the school boards that run international schools are not often as progressive as we are. And there was a director in one of our schools in our region a few years ago who was fired because they allowed for um, a gay and lesbian support group form at the school. Um, and the board didn't approve of that. And one of the members was a minister of parliament and they, he was fired within three months. So it's not only dangerous, it's dangerous for school leaders sometimes to step out on these topics how do we make that safer for everyone? And I think some of the, the, the work around that is around accreditation. And so, you know, I, I see groups like NEOSC, which I'm a commissioner on, taking this seriously. So schools need to have wide support in dangerous areas for um, the LGBTQ staff and students. Um, it's, it is not a, it's not an easy market to move around in, um, it's becoming more acceptable for um, queer youth to come out in school, but they're often finding out that it's safe with their friends, but not with the school community. So this is, the, this is a big trend that I'm seeing as well. There was just some study that showed that, I don't know, some Pittsburgh study that 10% of the students identified somewhere in, in, in around the idea of being non-binary. And, you know, most people don't even, most teachers don't even know what this term even means. You have 10% of your, of your students possibly identifying with being non-binary. And you are, as a, a youth 
to be surrounded by adults who have no idea what you're even talking about. There's a huge disconnect that's happening at the moment. In the world of TikTok and the internet um, has moved very quickly in terms of social acceptance of being queer. And there's some level of adults who are privileged to believe that can be some pieces of this and that it's okay to occasionally have a rainbow flag, but there is a lot of work to be done in schools on this issue. I, uh, I just, I'm like nodding my head, like not that anyone can see if they listen to this, <laughs> but I think uh, it's, it's so true because I, I, I worry about that for the students that, that I work with, um, just in terms of how we how we can be genuinely supportive at schools because they might be safe to come out at school, but maybe in their community they're not. And 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 I think you know pro LGBTQ work um, is really really important, um, and it's still got so many layers to it. Um, and uh, you know I especially feel like that in, a, in an international context. Um, and I, I work in college and university counselling, and, and this is a discussion I have with students. You know, like if if you are part of the LGBTQ community, like you really have to think about where you want to go to university and and who you want to be. And do you want to, you know, be openly um, out? You know, do you feel okay with with kind of hiding that part of you? Um, yeah, it's something I feel quite conflicted about because whilst feeling very much pro all this work, I do think reality is always very complex and um being well, i think this yeah. is this is the big the big myth of those who are not part of this community the big myth is that you come out once and then everything is fine from that point forward but those who are in the community know that's a lifetime of coming out and when is it okay to come out when is it safe to say anything there's this always this inner dialogue is this is this safe and when you look at when you look at learning and you look at the neuroscience of learning, this is the essential question every child is asking. And if you're ever in a situation where you're feeling even mildly unsafe, your ability to learn has been diminished greatly. So this, this is for something for us to understand as well. This safety piece, we're talking about the physical and psychological safety uh, of, of children. Um, who are just trying to understand who they are, maybe just coming to their own realizations. Um, and they're hoping that they can say this once and then it's all done and they, they're, you know, they're out and everyone's gonna support them and the rest of the world will always know and support them. But the layers of passing, of hiding, of protecting yourself are endless in this current situation. And you know, this is this idea of code switching. And for many of our um, our colleagues who who may be coming from um, different communities, I know, for example, Black Americans often have to code switch with their language um, to to sound um, more in like what is standard American accent and not speak with you know the uh, Black American English they might have at home. So this is this idea too, like we're still in this place in schools. We're still in a place where they're 
There are people forced into code switching. And if you're forced into code switching, then your community is not inclusive yet. It's not inclusive enough. You haven't reached it. You know, talk to your, your um, colleagues who are you know, people of color and ask them, are they code switching? And if they've come from India and now they're in the, your community, what does that feel like to how they have to present themselves? What does it feel like for um, the black African math teacher uh, when he's in your school? What does it feel like for the, um, the and many of you don't even know, your, your hidden trans teacher in, in your school who's terrified that if, if they're revealed, then, then they're, they're, it might be in physical danger. There's so much complexity to it. And this is the whole issue of, of why we're on the wrong track in schools. It, if we're not addressing the holistic person before you who has very specific needs and very specific supports needed, all of us do, every single one of us have particular needs based on our background and our identities. If you're not addressing that first, that is not leading your school program. You are doing a disservice to the individuals in your system. Yeah, so it's super, super powerful. Um, and yeah, so much food for thought to go away and think about like the, the, the nuance and the complexity of these, these issues within our schools. Um, Kathleen, I'm, I'm, I know you've um, kind of conscious of being very generous through your time. And actually, like, there's one question that I was thinking, oh, that's the one I like, you know, when I first reached out, I was going to ask you about it, and I realized. As I've you can so, tell, like, and all the listeners know, I just go on endlessly. So it's nothing <laughs> new, Sadie, when I'm blathering off. <laughs> no, no, actually, I think I, I, like, I could have about three different conversations with you, and I think they could all be a podcast episode themselves. So I I think I'm losing myself, but I really, really enjoy this um, talking about these different issues. And and I always uh, see this as a part one. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I love that. Um, so just to squeeze one more little bit of uh, of knowledge out of your time and experience, um, you're doing some really, really cool work um, at the International School of Helsinki around the neuroscience of learning space. And I was reading about the use of VR and you are a part of uh, an organization called Pioneering Schools and you are a pioneering school in the work that you're doing. Um, and I, when I was listening to a presentation, you were kind of mentioning how VR has been learned, uh, used in kind of fear-based environments, but you're hoping to tie it into well-being, diversity and inclusion or, or other uses beyond just fear-based environments. Um, I was just wondering if you could kind of share a little bit about the work that you're doing. Yeah, it's actually, it's, it's always, when, when people who know me know that I'm like leading work with VR, it's so hysterical because I have like a, a beat up old Android phone or I don't have a TV in the house. <laughs> um, I, I often find myself in, in this position of like innovative practices. Um, and, and what I see is, is coming down the pipe. Many people don't see that it's coming to education very quickly in the next few years. And We'll talk about it now, Sadie, and people are like, oh my gosh, she was on the cutting edge when we talked about this topic. But it's gonna be very commonplace three, four years from now, just like, you know, smartphones was an innovation not that long ago, right? It's, it's in this last decade, we can't even imagine our lives. VR is entering into a, a new, new era. 
And many of us have tried VR in the past. And I, I wasn't that, you know, I thought it was cool, but you know, one trick wonder. I, I wasn't this person like, oh, I'm gonna have my headset on and visit Paris kind of <laughs> moment. But what has happened in the last year is that um, VR has entered into social spaces, that there are social experiences. Before you put on a VR headset, just you and what you were, you were viewing. Now that VR has moved to a place where I can put on a headset here and you could have your headset on in Thailand and it can feel like we're in the same room together. And it can feel that we have presence together and that it feels differently to the human brain on this. So, you know, we've been talking, a lot of people have been stuck in these very awful hybrid situations where you had like a camera in your room, you have three kids at home, can't come in because of COVID quarantines, you have 17 kids and you're trying to navigate all of this. I can see as this one step is, this next step is gonna be in this VR universe. They're calling this the metaverse. And it's really hard to explain unless you've experienced it. But what has happened is now that I can see is that VR has, has been starting to be used in therapeutic practices. And it's being used in like elder care homes where um, people who are maybe paraplegic or have other things and can't leave the location that they can experience joyful, um, otherworldly kind of locations or landscapes in new ways with other people at the same time. What I'm, what I'm doing at the moment is I'm in this pilot project with HP, Hewlett Packard. And this is again, do you know your values? Because if you know your values, then you're always talking to them. So here I was, I had this random meeting with HP um, because I was doing some work with um, uh, the city of Helsinki trying to have them um, understand the importance of my international school. And they were very turned on by some of the work we were doing. And Helsinki's trying to bring in some like big ed tech money to the, to the scene. And suddenly I realized I'm in a pitch meeting. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna go for it. <laughs> I'm gonna go for what I want. And on the spot, I said, here's the project I wanna have. I want a project where we're creating the classroom scape, landscape, scenario, environment of the future in VR. Currently, VR is like this fear-based environment, it's cheap emotions. Like, you know, you're on, a, you're on a cliff, it looks like you're gonna fall, the fire's exploding, you know, games, it's a kind of a game environment. What if we were to take what we know from neuroscience, what we know from psychology of environments that support our well being, environments that support diversity and inclusion? And what if instead of replicating what we do now, and this is what's happening in VR, people are taking what looks like a classroom and putting it into, into the metaverse. So it looks like you're in another classroom. Like, why would I want to do that? Because the classroom is this old fashioned, horrible environment. What if we were, for example, and what I say here in Finland speaks to a lot of people here, it's like, what if we were in like a birch forest and you could hear the leaves crumpling under your feet and you could hear the, the birds 
And it's a place for a brainstorming session with you and other students in the class. Um, and it has a soundscape that supports your, your well-being. And the biometrics show that uh, you become more relaxed and you're being supported in that well-being. And that you, um, you have all the tricks you can have in VR. See, the weird thing about VR is I could put you into a, a birch forest, but also then like magically show like a YouTube screen. And let's take a look at this little clip I wanna show you, or here's a little whiteboard. So we could take the best of the, the tech we like to do as teachers, the things we like to do to show and discuss and to you know provide provocations for a kid. But what if we put into place where when a kid goes into that scene, it's like, it's an exhale. Like, oh, it feels really good to be here. And I'm with my friends. And we can put on avatars that help us um, feel good about ourselves. It's funny when, you, when kids have a choice of these avatars, um, you know, these strange um, cartoon-like figures sometimes. And that's one possible choice. It could be an avatar that looks like us as well. But if what, what if you don't wanna be yourself? Sometimes you're in school and you're a teenager, you wanna be something else. I always laugh about how my, my son sees this world. So like he was showing me around through some of this stuff. And like, he's gonna pick an avatar. I'm like, we're gonna pick and he's random choices. And he like picked a fork. <laughs> it looked like, it looked like, it was like a large fork. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> And that's like, that's exactly why you want to co-create this with kids, because we as adults would never expect that a fork would be the choice of the avatar I'd want to be. But, you know, they've already done studies with diversity training in some corporates where they've done, for example, in the diversity training, they put you in the, the skin of a black man and show yourself being othered in a room. And, and then you suddenly have empathy. And in these metaverse scapes, you can, they often have a mirror. So you're in your goggles and you look in the mirror and you see yourself moving, but you see yourself as the avatar. So if I were to be in the body of a black man, my brain is absorbing that and feels that and creates empathy around that. There is incredible therapeutic and well-being possibilities for the future VR. And, what we have to understand VR is, is gonna be the ultimate tool for empathy that we've never imagined before. Just like 15 years ago, none of us understood mobile technology and how that would change everything about who we are and how we function. The, the world of what we call XR, extended reality, which is gonna be like AR goggles, augmented reality, VR goggles, VR type things, helmets, headsets, contact lenses. I don't know where it's going, but a revolution is coming our way in schooling. And I wanna lead it. I wanna lead the pedagogy. Why? Let's take best pedagogy with what we know from psychology and what we know from neuroscience and make it a better place for kids. Like here's our shot. We've been stuck with this model for 120, 150 years of what schooling looks like. In VR, physics don't apply. It can be whatever you dream of, absolutely every. And the funny part of it is like, someone was talking once and they said, you know, it could, the scene could look like absolutely rubbish, but when you put that headset on and when you're experiencing, your brain totally takes it in. 
So you can make really kind of like cheap kind of, you know, 3D type images. Um, we have the technology now for students to make 3D scenes that they can then experience in VR. They themselves. My son is working on this now. He's 15 years old. He does uses some free software for it. So this HP project. So I, I, I made this pitch and the guy was like, yes, we're worried about well-being. And next thing I know, our school is the only secondary school in the world to be receiving this grant. There are three other universities that are working on VR in Europe that have gotten it. Schools in the US like MIT and Stanford have been a part of this grant, but my pitch on using well-being in schools with VR, um, they found intriguing. No one else is really working on it the way I'm talking about it. But again, like, like I've argued, if you know your values, you know your vision for education, you can, you can apply that to any scene and, um, and who knows what happens next. So that's what I'm doing with HP. We're, 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 the award is gonna be granted to us um, over the summer. I'm gonna try to mix my stand group with this VR work because I want those who are othered to be helping me understand how do we create belonging. And you know, I wanna empower those who might have the least amount of power in a teenage community. I want them to have the cool stuff that everyone wants to be a part of. So that's also in the back of my mind. How do I create, how do I create well-being and belonging for those who still are on the fringe of my community, still those who are scared to be themselves, those who feel that they're not accepted, and how do we create that 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 change might happen in our community? I think I I was I was in it. I was, I was if I was in that pitch, I would have hands down gone for that as well. I think that's like. <laughs> so so special and um, to see that in such an innovative way and and you said like who knows what's next and i know it sounds a bit cheesy but i think kathleen is, is what's next and, and following your work at a um, at least i feel like i'm pushing the boundaries for people to think differently about it and who knows where our project goes but i hope you know people listening out there and you know there's some there's some great friends i've met on twitter who probably listen to this podcast too like you know, get in touch with me. There's already a few people I've been talking to and they want to bring their school into this project as well, possibly. Um, and what, the funny thing about VR is that VR is being led by women. And um, this is something that a lot of people don't understand. We see, we see things that other people aren't seeing. The gamers had their, 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 their part of that. Now there's, there's a whole new universe of ideas yet to be explored. Super exciting times. Um, yeah, I've absolutely loved this conversation, Kathleen. I really, really appreciate you being so generous with your time and your experience and, uh, and allowing me to completely go off script. And the questions I sent, I probably asked about 10% of them. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I, will, I will bring it to a close there, but I just want to say thank you so much. And um, I'm really excited to, to continue following your work. So thank you. Yeah, well, let me thank you, Sadie, too, because I know what you're working on at the moment and what you're doing is also incredibly important. Um, the, the work of what's, what matters to the lives of young people starts, starts with well-being. Your magazine is important. The work you're doing now, getting people's voices out there 
is incredibly important. Um, having representation of LGBTQ uh, work and leaders is important. And so I wanna thank you for the work you're doing and um, you know, express my gratitude that this is what helps push the needle towards a better place for all of us. Awesome, Sue, so, really kind of you to say, Catherine. And yeah, thank you so much again. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Wise Education podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode, then please feel free to like and share. I'd also love for you to check out the Wise Education blog and magazine. There are a great range of articles discussing a variety of different issues of well-being and international school education in the recent issue of the Wise Education magazine, which is available to download for free from the Wise Education blog. Issue four of the magazine includes articles covering topics such as navigating trans identity in school, improving well-being through positive school culture, safeguarding an international school, and much more. Please drop me a message if you'd be interested in joining the Wise Education community, and thanks again for listening.